All right, well, would you join me again as we go to the Lord in prayer? Lord Jesus, you are our cornerstone. Cornerstone is the first stone laid for a building. Laid in the corner to keep the rest of the building straight and sturdy and strong. Lord Jesus, you are the cornerstone of our lives. We take our direction from you. We are supported by you. You are our everything. And I ask right now that you would be the cornerstone of our time together this morning, that you would speak through your word as we listen to it and learn from it today. Please help us in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, this morning, I'd encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Acts, Acts chapter 14. So last week, we looked at Acts 13. So in the New Testament, um, there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. And if you need a Bible, there should be one in front of you under the, under the pew. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. And we're in Acts chapter 14. Um, last week we covered 52 verses. This week it's a lot shorter, uh, but still a good amount, 28 verses. Um, now last week you may remember that in Acts 13, a bunch of Jewish people strongly opposed the message about Jesus. So a bunch of Jewish people, Jesus' own biological relatives, are strongly opposed to the message about Jesus. And this town is called Pisidian Antioch. Antioch, Pisidian Antioch, we can't confuse that with a different Antioch that we learned about in chapter 11. I don't know if you know this, but there's multiple Granvilles in this country. Okay? Well, there was multiple Antiochs in the ancient world. One was Pisidian Antioch, and one was Antioch where they left in um, chapter 11. The Antioch that they first left from, we talked about that a few weeks ago. It was like this big hub of Christian activity. A lot of Christians there, and they sent Paul and Barnabas out from their midst on a missions trip to go overseas to Cyprus, and now to Pisidian Antioch, and, and Pisidian Antioch is much further north and to the west. <laughs> so anyways, after the Jews make the teaching of the word really challenging in Pisidian Antioch, you see that at the end of chapter 13, the disciples, Paul and Barnabas, they, they do something really interesting. They, they take their sandals off and they whack them out, shake the dust off their sandals, and they leave. Because of the rejection of the message there. It's like they were saying the dust of this town has been contaminated. You read about the contamination going on in that poor town in Ohio with the train derailing. Okay. Well, this town has been contaminated not by toxic chemicals, but by a refusal to believe in the message about Jesus and a violent opposition from it. And so the symbolic nature of what they're doing when they whack their sandals out is they're saying, 
This dust needs to stay here. Oh, Lord, may this unbelief not spread to symbolic action as they're driven from Pisidian Antioch. And they head to a town called Iconium. So, Gary, could you pull up the map for me? I forgot to tell you before, but um, Iconium is up there. I don't know if you can see it. It's a little blurry. So you see the two Antiochs? That's where they were sent off on their missions trip over there. This is like Jerusalem in the Middle East down here. That's Antioch, 300 miles north of Jerusalem. And they go on a ship ride to Cyprus. And then we read about that all last week. And then they go up to Pisidian Antioch, which is after a brief stop at Perga and Palia, they go up to Pisidian Antioch, which is in the region of Pisidia. So that's why they call it Pisidian Antioch. Well, that's up in modern Turkey, right? And, and so um, now they are uh, leaving there, and they go, that you see an arrow down to Iconium, and then Lystra, and then Derby. So that's what we're looking at today. Gary, you can toggle off of that now if you would. All right, thanks, brother. So um, again, big picture. This is all part of this first missionary journey that the Apostle Paul and his friend Barnabas are on. And they have a guy named John Mark who's along with them. But for some reason, we're not really told why, John Mark decides, yeah, this, this mission stuff isn't for me. Maybe they asked him to, to do a job he didn't want to do. I don't know. But he, I'm not going to paint that fence. No, okay. But they, they, he jumps ship. Maybe because things got hard. And so they continue on alone. And in our passage today, chapter 14, we start with them at mid-journey up in Iconium. So let's jump right in. Acts 14, and I'm just going to read this whole story for you, and with very little interruption. And I, I just would like you, if you could, to just focus on the story and try to remember some of the details as we go, go through. So let's look at this story. At Iconium, that town that we looked at, uh, Paul and Barnabas went, as usual, to the Jewish synagogue, the Jewish place of worship. Jesus was a Jewish teacher, and so they go to talk to the Jews first about Jesus. And there they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks, non-Jewish people, believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. The, the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot among both Jews and Gentiles, together with their leaders, to mistreat them and stone them. Stoning is when you throw little rocks at somebody until they slowly die. You wouldn't throw big rocks. That would go too fast, right? But they, they found out about it, Paul and Barnabas, and they fled to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country where they continued to preach the gospel. In Lystra, there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth, and he had never walked. So he's, he's never walked before. 
you imagine that? I've never walked. The days before prosthetics. And, and as this guy is listening to Paul speaking, Paul's talking about Jesus, Paul looks directly at the guy, and, and he saw that this man had faith to be healed. And so he calls up, stand on your feet. And at that, this man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, the gods have come to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus. You guys ever hear that name, Zeus? And, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The, the priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, he's all excited. Zeus is here! This is his, this is his moment of glory! I've been serving Zeus my whole life, and he's here in my town. What? So he's, he's pumped. So he, he brings, look at verse 13, right? He brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates. He puts the wreaths on the bulls, get them all decorated up nice with these fancy wreaths before they get sacrificed to Zeus. And he's getting ready to offer sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas. Meanwhile, they're inside the city preaching. They don't know what's going on. All of a sudden, when the apostles Barnabas and Saul or Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and they rushed out into the crowd shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are just human, like you. We are making you, we are bringing you good news. Gospel. That's what the word gospel is. Good news. We're telling you to turn from these worthless things, like whacking bulls to the Zeus guy, and we're telling you turn from them to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons, he provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then, some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. Talk about whiplash. They're about to sacrifice to you as a god and then... One verse later, they're throwing rocks at you. Crowds are pretty fickle. They can turn on a dime, right? Think about the day of social media, how fast people can turn on someone. One minute, celebrity. Next minute, canceled forever. <laughs> so after, this is their big cancel culture here, right? They cancel them with rocks. Verse 20, after the disciples have gathered around him, he got up. Paul's getting up. And went back into the city. The next day he left Barnabas. He and Barnabas left for Derby. They preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned. They went back to the people that threw rocks at them. They returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. And this is what they said. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. 
Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. After going through Pisidia, they came into Pamphylia, and when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, all these old names from different cities. From Italia, they sailed back to Antioch. So basically, they're just going around in modern-day Turkey. You know where that earthquake hit? All over, right through there, where they've been committed. So now they're going back to Antioch, that other Antioch, the one down by the Mediterranean, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles, and they stayed there a long time with the disciples. All right, so we're going to work our way through, back around through these verses. There's five parts. You can look at the back of your little paper that I handed. That's the outline of what we're going to do. And we're going to see these five movements here. First, they're in Iconium, the town. Second, they move to Lystra. Third, they're in Derby. Fourth, they go back and revisit all these churches. And then fifth and finally, they go sail all the way back home to Antioch. And here's kind of, if you tie everything we're going to see together, there's a main point. What's the main idea of all these verses? On their missions trip, these different stops that they're going on, Paul and Barnabas, they preach boldly, talk about Jesus boldly, they endure persecution, hard things, and they focus on making disciples. Bold preaching, strong endurance of persecution, and disciple making. Right? We'll dig into each one together. So, first, they're in Iconium in verses 1 to 5. That's what we're going to see first. After they left Pisidian Antioch, Shaking the dust off their sandals, they just go a few miles away, not far, up to Iconium. And there they immediately start preaching in the Jewish synagogue in the city. And as has been the case all throughout the book of Acts, Jews and Greeks, they start believing in the message about Jesus. And here, it's not just a few people. It's a large number. But as we saw in the previous story last week, immediately the apostles start to face some serious opposition to the message about Jesus. The more people get saved, the more the reaction is. From a Jewish perspective, Jews who didn't follow Jesus, they thought this was all some kind of crazy conspiracy. This Jewish guy preached in Jerusalem for a while, got killed, murdered on a cross, and then everybody said he rose from the dead. You, didn't, you never saw this Jesus guy, and here you are hearing about this, and you're Jewish, and you're like, man, my family's gotten caught up in the weird conspiracy theory. Okay, now if your whole family, if let's say, okay, let's say you have a family reunion, and one of your uncles He's got this, he's way out on this conspiracy theory. You, you might be a little concerned, but you might not. You might just, that's just Uncle Joe, you know, that's just him. But imagine if you go to this family reunion and your whole family, everybody from the youngest to the oldest is like, yeah, Uncle Joe's right. We, he convinced us. They're all in on this. You, you'd, be, uh, you'd be really concerned, right? Or maybe you start wondering, maybe it's true. Okay, 
imagine you're a, you're a Jewish person in a Jewish synagogue three, four hundred miles away from the main hub of Judaism, Jerusalem, and you're hearing about this Jesus guy, and, and some of your closest friends, one of your closest friends, or two of them, are saying, yeah, we're in with this Jesus thing. You might be a little concerned, but what if, like, all your friends, or hundreds of people, or thousands of people are starting to sign up? That's what's getting these Jews here, the ones that disagree, really, really freaking out. There's a lot of people that are getting caught up in what they see as a very dangerous conspiracy about a guy who said he was a king and got killed in Jerusalem and then came back to life. So... I believe that message is true. That's the message that changed my life. And it's changing many lives in our story. But it's not accepted by everyone. <clears throat> Verse 2, these Jews that refused to believe, the disobedient Jews, they stirred up the other Gentiles there. And they, they, made, they poisoned their minds some of your translations may say something a little different. It, it's literally they made them angry. They got them all angry against the brothers. Instead of receiving the news about Jesus as good news, they chose to be a disobedient to the message, to not listen to Jesus. I mean, if he really did rise from the dead... If he really is who he said he was, their king, their rightful king, the king of not just Israel, but the whole world, you should listen to him. But they choose not to, and so then they use their powerful position to try to keep the Gentiles from listening to this message as well. No, 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 don't buy it. It's a conspiracy. He didn't really rise from the dead, and who knows what they're saying. Maybe they were saying, the disciples came in the night and they stole his body. Right. Against armed guards as they're like cowering in fear because the guy they just followed as the way the truth and the life has gotten brutally murdered and so they, they're so brave they go steal the body and tell everybody he's risen and give their lives for that? No. I don't think so. But whatever they're trying to do, they're trying to lead them away from following Jesus. Now, look at what Paul and Barnabas' response is to this opposition. Instead of saying... Peace out. See you guys. They stay. You see that? They stay for a long time. They don't shrink back in fear. They don't hang their heads and leave. Oh, well, because these guys don't want us. They rise up. They meet the challenge by speaking boldly for the Lord. And the Lord himself was with them, enabling them to perform some miraculous signs that accompanied their message about Jesus. In verse 4, the message of Jesus begins to divide the whole city. This is a big deal. Everybody's getting split up over this. Something um, that the people are divided, which um, is something I just want you to think about. The message about Jesus can divide people. It can divide families. Even today, it can divide whole cities. When people disagree about Jesus and who he is, and the claims that he makes. like If you really know who Jesus is. And you really believe who Jesus that Jesus is who he said he was. The son of God. Risen from the dead. Total authority. If you really believe that the Jesus who stands up at the end right before he ascends into heaven. And says 
All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. If that guy really is the one he said, like, that's a very divisive claim. If you say, no, Jesus, it's not all yours. Um, that, that, that's a divisive thing. That, that divides. He said, Jesus is who he said he was, or he was a liar, or just crazy. Right? And so, disagreement about who Jesus is is just rocking this city. And so... Verse 5, some of the Gentiles and Jews in Iconium, who, who, they might not agree on a lot of things. Like the Gentiles, they're, they're worshiping Zeus or whatever they want to worship. And the Jewish people are worshiping Yahweh. But they, they find common ground in this. we got to kill these guys. They're messing up our city. And so they make plans to stone the apostles to death. Now, I want you to notice that the apostles, Barnabas and Saul, when they, or Paul, when they, when they find out about these plans to kill them, they don't stand up in the market and say, okay, here we are, bring it on, kill us, we want to die for Jesus. Sometimes, um, I don't know if you've ever experienced this reading or writing, you know, reading about Christians who have given their lives for their faith. Sometimes, in the, over the course of church history, over the last 2,000 years, um, Christians have written about and talked about martyrs, people that give their lives for serving Jesus. They've, they've done it in a way that sounds like Christians should be masochistic. Like, so what's masochism? It's like a twisted form of pleasure that people can find in being beaten or abused by those with more power. That's... That, you know, Whoa, I love being crucified. Crucify me again. No, that's, that's not what Christianity is about. But believe it or not, there have been movements in the church that have kind of held up martyrdom as like this amazing thing. Like, oh, we're all saying we want to get killed for Jesus. And that's not really the flavor you get in the New Testament, okay? Um, over and over in Acts, we see that if possible, you run. It's not a bad thing. Um, Paul and Barnabas, in verses 6 and 7, they flee persecution. So it's not wrong to try to be, avoid being murdered for your faith. This is not relevant right now in America, but it may be someday. It's relevant. You're like, well, nobody's trying to kill me. I'm in church, and nobody's running in here with a gun. But if you're in Iran or North Korea or some places in China or Nigeria, like this is a daily reality. This could happen. It does happen every year, every single week. It's happening somewhere around the world. But it's not wrong if the church gets a tip, hey, a bomber's coming, for them to close down service and, you know, we're going to keep on the DL for a little while. No, trying to avoid being murdered isn't wrong, but it, what it doesn't include is trying to avoid speaking about Jesus. Right? So, yes, the apostles might try to avoid being killed, but they don't shut up about Jesus. That's what's important here. They're not afraid to talk about the Lord. And if push comes to shove and they go to jail, they go to jail. We'll see that lots of times. So now look at what they do as they, they leave and try to flee being stoned. The second movement is Paul and Barnabas go to Lystra, the next city. And in Lystra, they don't 
be quiet about Jesus because they're afraid they'll get persecuted again. Look, look at verse 7. They continued to preach the gospel, the good news. Jesus is king. You need to listen to him. And in verse 8, something happens that ought to remind us of what happened to the other apostles of Jesus back in Acts chapter 3. So if you're not familiar with the book of Acts, maybe you can read that story later this week. Acts chapter 3, the third <clears throat> chapter there. Peter and John, two apostles of Jesus, two of his followers, back in Acts 3, are going to the temple in Jerusalem to pray, and they meet a lame man, and he says, give me money, and they say, we don't got money, but in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And the guy gets up and starts jumping and leaping and praising God, and everybody's all excited, and then the apostles go to jail for it, right? Well, this, this is a similar story. Um, Paul and Barnabas now see this lame man. He's never walked. Paul looks at him. He sees the guy is listening to the message about Jesus. He's, he's totally engaged. He's listening, and he has trust in Jesus. There's faith in his heart. And so he says to him, be healed. And the guy jumps up, just like that other guy. Very similar. It's like deja vu. If you've been reading the book of Acts, you're like, wow, Jesus did the same thing here as he did there. And he begins to walk. And after this miracle... Uh, there's something that happens in this pagan city that's really different than what happens in Jerusalem, okay? So if you remember, back in Jerusalem, Paul does this right outside the temple, or not, not Paul, Peter does this right outside the temple in Acts 3. And um, the crowds come running to see, like, holy cow, we've been walking past this guy trying to avoid eye contact with him for years, as he sits outside the temple with his little can and he says, homeless, I don't, you know, and, and, and he's asking for money. And you don't, if you don't have money, you don't make eye contact, right? I don't know if you've ever gone to Rutland and at the end of the, the group four there, you're parked there waiting. And if you're not going to give the guy money that's asking for money, you don't usually turn and look him right in the eye the whole time. Well, Peter and John don't have money. But they look at the guy. And Paul does the same thing here. He looks at him, doesn't give him money, gives him the ability to walk. And just like in Acts 3, this huge crowd starts gathering. But in Acts 3, um, they're gathering and they're giving thanks to God about what happened. Here, it's a little different. The crowd gathers and they think that these two pagan gods, Zeus and Hermes, have come down to heaven and visited their town. That's the difference between a Jewish audience and a mostly Gentile audience, okay? People that don't worship the God of Israel. We're Gentiles, right? We're non-Jewish people. Well, it's interesting that there's an ancient poet. You can still read his works today if you're so inclined. The, the Greek poet Ovid. Any of you kids read Ovid in school? I didn't, but I looked it up and read this myth in Ovid about Zeus and Hermes coming to this town in Lyconia. So in their own traditions in myth, mythology, they had this legend about how Zeus and Hermes showed up. And the last time Zeus and Hermes showed up, things didn't go really well. The town didn't give them a proper welcome, and Zeus and Hermes sent a flood, and they all got destroyed. So this time, the priest of Zeus is like, guys, we need, to, we need to be really careful here how we treat these guys. Because if these are Zeus and Hermes, we want to make sure we give them a really warm welcome. 
and uh, otherwise we might get a flood and wipe us, wipe us out off the map. So they get some bulls all dressed up with wreaths to give some sacrifices. Now, I want you to think about this. What would you do if people thought you were a god and started preparing a huge sacrificial, sacrificial feast for you? Like uh, J Captain Jack Sparrow and uh, the... Uh, I forget which one of those many, many movies that was, but yeah, I think he, the Islanders think he's a god, right? Um, well, what would you do? Would you bask in the glory of it? Would you try to make a quick buck off it? Yeah, sacrifices, sure. And while you're at it, I'd really appreciate free tickets to the local bathhouse, and I actually really like lasagna. Um, well, no, what, what about what do Barnabas and Paul start doing here? They tear their clothes. Blasphemy is happening. They plead with the people of the city, don't make this mistake. We're just humans. We are no different than you. We didn't make this guy walk. Jesus did. Through us. You might remember, if you were here a few weeks ago, um, that somebody else had this exact same thing happen to him. In Acts 12, you can flip a page back and look. Acts 12, verses 21 to 23, there's a Jewish king named Herod, half-Jewish. And on an appointed day, dressed in royal robes, Acts 12, 21, and seated on his throne back in the Jerusalem region, Herod delivers a public address to some crowds, and the assembled people begin to shout, It's the voice of a god, not a man! And at once the angel of the Lord struck him because he didn't give glory to God and he became infected with worms and died. We covered that story a couple weeks ago. And remember there I said the only account of this is not just in the Bible. The ancient Jewish historian Josephus, who is a very reliable source for the most part of history, records this event and, and says, yeah, Herod's given this glorious speech and all of a sudden, everybody's going, he's so amazing, he's a god, which is really what they're trying to do is they're, they're trying to butter him up because he's basically, they're in a famine and he has kind of put the kibosh on their food supply. And so they're trying to be like, yeah, you're a god, you're awesome. Give us food because we're suffering, right? So, so, but Herod, so, so in the story, Herod literally is, Josephus says he gets incredible belly pains in his loins and he falls over and they cart him away and later on it's found out that he has this parasite that is horrible and yeah, not good. But Paul and Barnabas in our story don't make the same mistake as Herod. Herod basks in the glory as people are calling him a god. If they had pulled out the sacrifices for him, he would have probably said, yeah, I like, I like my meat medium rare. Whatever, you know, this is, Herod would have been all about it, but not Paul and Barnabas. No, in verse 15, they start to preach to the crowds, and they say, friends, why are you doing this? We're only human like you. We're bringing you gospel, good news. We're telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the seas and everything in them. In the past, he let nations, like you, go their own way, Yet he has not left himself without a testimony. God didn't leave people in the dark. No, he's shown kindness to you by giving you rain from heaven, crops in their seasons, 
He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Like, even though you have not followed God, the living God, the real God at all, there's still some nice things in your life. You've completely rejected him, and yet you get up in the morning and you breathe oxygen that he made. You enjoy the sunshine that he created. You eat food that he invented. You're living in his world. You're, you're, you're benefiting from him every waking moment, and you're, you're, he hasn't left you alone, even though you've completely rejected him. That's their point. And look at verse 18. Even with these words... They still had difficulty keeping the crowds from sacrificing to them. I mean, it's like these guys had their knives out. They're sharpening them. <laughs> Let's go. Let's sacrifice to Zeus. And they finally talk them off the cliff, and these guys are going to do it. Now, um, we're going to circle back and look at the significance of their, their sermon at the end of our time together. But I just want you to look here at verse 19. Some Jews came from Antioch, city in Antioch, then, right, right after this, maybe while it's still going on, I don't know, they arrived. Um, so they had just been at the city in Antioch, and do you remember what they were making plans to do back up there in Pisidian, Pisidian Antioch when Paul left? Stone them. So now, these guys come down, and... and, and from Pisidian Antioch and from Iconium, where they had made plans to stone them, and they won the crowd over. These are dedicated people. Pisidian Antioch was over 100 miles away. And you don't just jump in a car and drive there. It's probably on foot. These guys are coming, these Jewish people are coming from Pisidian Antioch all the way down to Iconium and, and to this city here to basically... Um, to Lystra to persecute them. But Jews and Gentiles in the city, they get all riled up. And so much so, Paul and Barnabas, they don't have a time to flee. They get stoned in verse 19 and dragged outside the city, thinking he was dead. Um, usually when they stone people, they used little rocks. I mentioned that earlier, so that it would take a long time. Prolonging the suffering. It's really awful if you think about it. Um, but apparently, at least, I mean, it doesn't say this, but <laughs> how did they think he was dead? Well, maybe somebody got a little jumpy and grabbed too big of a rock and knocked him out right in the first go of it. You know? <laughs> what do you think about it? You know, some eager guy grabs a big old rock, and the first rock clocks him in the head, and down he goes. Well, we killed him. They drag him outside the city thinking he's dead, and the disciples gather around him, and he gets up, and he goes into the city. Now, some folks have said, well, God raised him from the dead. He died, and he rose up. Maybe, but I think Luke would be eager to tell us that, if that's really what happened. I, I just think they, they, uh, they stoned him, and um, he, they thought he was dead, but he wasn't. So, Paul... Uh, goes right back into the city. And remember what I said about fleeing persecution? Okay? That's, that's what they're about to do here. Um, I, Ben's not here, so I can pick on him, my brother. I remember a long time ago, uh, a discipline session where my dad um, disciplined my brother Ben. He was, he was young, six maybe. And uh, 
Ben said in a very innocent, sweet voice, that didn't hurt. And Dad said, I'll fix that. <laughs> this isn't what Paul and Barnabas do, right? They don't go back into the city and go, Paul's not like, you missed me. <laughs> Bring it on. <laughs> Try again. Go fish. You know, no. They immediately keep moving. Let's go. And so this is the third part. They're in Derby. Look at the verse 20. Next day, he, Paul, and Barnabas left for Derby. They preached the gospel in that city, and they won a large number of disciples. You see a common theme, large numbers turning to the Lord. This is the same pattern of all Paul's visits to these cities. Go to a city, preach about Jesus, people get saved. They turn to the Lord. And yet, in Derby, there's no opposition. If they did face some, we're not told, which this stands out. We've seen opposition in every city up to this point. Many people believe in Jesus and become disciples. The word disciple is really important. I want you to notice that word. At the very core of what a disciple means is the idea of a pupil, a student. A disciple is a learner, a student of Jesus. Not just somebody who likes the sound of the gospel. Wow, forgiveness from God, that sounds great. Raises their hand praise a prayer, Jesus, I want you in my life, and then keeps calm and carries on. Sometimes when we see the gospel preached to, in our day and age, the focus is on getting people to just make a decision for Jesus. People decide to follow Jesus. And that, it, following Jesus is a decision. But it's more than that. We are called to make disciples. Jesus, at the end of his gospel, the gospel of Matthew, stands up and says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Teaching to obey Jesus in everything which is a lifelong process. I don't know about you, but I've been following Jesus now for 26 years, and I'm still learning to obey everything Jesus has commanded in every area of my life. Being a disciple is not just making a decision in my head, yeah, Jesus, he's cool. I like the idea of that. No, Jesus calls us to trust him, to turn from him, to become students of him, to yield our allegiance to him, Every moment of every day forever. To stand up and say, not I pledge allegiance to the flag, but I pledge allegiance to the throne of the risen Son of God. And to the kingdom over which he rules. Right? Disciples, learners of Jesus. That's what the apostles are trying to, to develop in all of these towns with the Lord's help. And now, look what they do next. They go and they revisit the churches in verses 21 to 25, which that should show us, guys, how committed they are to this whole discipleship thing. They're not just trying to get decisions for Jesus. They could have just gone back to Antioch at that point, not Pisidian Antioch, but to the first Antioch where they've been commissioned. They could have gone back and said, boy, we've been through a lot. <laughs> we, we, it's time to go home. 
And they could have given a missions report, something like this. Guess what, guys? You sent us out, and we had 20,000 decisions made for Jesus. We had 18,000 baptisms. We had 15,000 people recommit their lives to Christ or whatever. Yeah, that would be a typical Southern Baptist church missions report. And it would have maybe even been very effective in raising funding for their next missions trip. Man, these guys, they're so effective. You know what? We're going to buy you your own private ship for the next trip. Planes haven't been invented yet. Because you're so effective spreading the gospel, we're going to get you a new set of wheels. Okay? No, that's not what part of Paul and Barnabas are about. Instead, these brothers, they risked their lives to go back to the towns that tried to kill them to continue the work of disciple-making. Numbers of decisions are not important to them. They know that the Christian life is a long race, a marathon, filled with ups and downs, lots of hurdles, lots of hardships and troubles. There's a lot of pitfalls and dangers and temptations waiting for these new believers who have just trusted Jesus in all these towns. And so they return, verse 21, to Lystra, Iconium, Antioch, all these places. And they, verse 22, they are strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. Why would they need encouragement to remain true to Jesus? Well, there's constant danger. For every one of us who says, yeah, I want to follow Jesus, there's a constant danger that we would drift in our allegiance to the Lord Jesus, especially when hard things come into our lives. For some, the storms of life wash over us like waves and they slap us against the rock and the rock is Christ. That's a metaphor in the song one song that we sing sometimes here, the waves carry us to the rock, the rock of Christ. Throwing us upon Christ, Lord. You know when people pray most often is when they're in trouble, right? Sometimes, I, I, I need, you know, I'm in between jobs, I pray more, right? <laughs> Crisis, I need, my, my plumbing broke, I pray more, right? I know that's what I do. Hardship throws us upon Christ, but hardship can also do Another thing to us, it can make us grow angry at God. I didn't sign up for this. And it can pull us away from the rock and out to sea. And this is why Paul says in verse 22, guys, listen, we must go through many hardships before we make it to God's heavenly kingdom when all is going to be okay. I want you to picture Paul saying this with his face. This is a guy who's been stoned and left for dead. This probably left some marks. He's been through a lot. Imagine this brutally scarred face and this guy telling you, eye to eye, we have to go through hard things, really hard things in our Christian life. But Jesus is with us. This message is so different that Paul and Barnabas are giving from the message of a lot of popular Christian TV personalities and preachers in our day. And I don't say that lightly. You turn on the Christian TV, TBN network, whatever, and you listen to multi-millionaires 
every book they write, every message they give, their goal is to help you have an absolutely fantastic life on this earth. One of the most popular books ever written, Your Best Life Now. Okay? These are well-intentioned books, but their messages, they want to help people, but the messages are profoundly out of touch with this verse. We must go, not optional, not if you don't have enough faith, you're going to go through hard things. But if you have enough faith, you'll never get sick, you'll never get ill, you'll never have problems. You just have faith, and you're going to soar through life, and then... No. That wasn't the path of Jesus. That's not the path of any of the apostles. That's not the path of Acts 14, 22. Through many hardships, we must follow Jesus. Verse 23, And so Paul and Barnabas, the appointed elders for each church with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. This is important to see. Elders in every church are appointed as the apostles leave. The word elder is just another word for pastor. Um, we, we don't have time to explain all that. In Acts chapter 20, we'll talk about that. Our church has two elders, me and, and Carl at this point. We did have three um, but my buddy Brian, he's, in, in some, uh, he's doing a PhD now in Kansas City. But uh, we um, are, are appointed as elders of this church, right? And this is what Paul and Barnabas are doing. They're appointing elders. Um, several years later, Paul is going to lay out qualifications and guidelines for other people appointing elders. He does this in two of his letters, Timothy and Titus. Um, Christian elders, what are they? Well, they're not some sort of super elite Christian in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. A pastor is not a perfect man, asked my wife. Not a sinless man. If they were, if we were supposed to be, then the apostle Peter would not have been qualified to be an elder. We saw that in the last story we looked at about Peter. Sleeping when he should be praying. Peter blew it a lot, denying Jesus three times. Elders are Christian men who are truly following Jesus, who are able to model normal Christian living, including what repenting from sin looks like. There are also men who are able to teach the truths of the gospel of Christian living and defend the truths of the faith against heresy. That's why Paul, as he's going back, is appointing these guys. Multiple elders being appointed in each church is one way that Paul and Barnabas are trying to help these little gatherings of Christians in each town stay on track. With Jesus, stay true to Jesus. Elders help them see what following Jesus looked like, what asking for forgiveness from sin looked like, trying to help them as they pursue their journey of discipleship. The last thing here is that they return to Antioch in verses 26 to 28 from Atalia. They sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. So, 
in Antioch, um, I want you to listen to what they say. Uh, they say in Antioch that um, the, the, the report that they give is that the great, what the grace of the Lord had done through them, and how, verse 27, um, he opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Okay, verse 26, what the grace of God had completed through them. It's important that as they give their report about what they've done, they're saying, guys, look at what we did. There's churches in all these towns. We are awesome. We are like the A team, right? That's not the flavor of this missions report. The flavor is, look what God did through us. Look how he saved us. Like, I was, I should have been dead. You know, Paul got stoned. But God kept me alive because his work for me wasn't done yet. Pretty amazing. God did the work through them. God gets the glory for everything. This should be our posture as disciples, learners of Jesus. Look at what God did through my family, you know? My family is awesome. Look what God did, not look what I did through the powers of my amazing parenting, right? God gets the credit for everything, whether it's in the realm of parenting, the realm of work, the realm of ministry for the Lord. We're using his air as we live our life. He created it. We're using the bodies he made us for everything that we do. We're using the food that he invented to get strength to do whatever we do. He gets the credit for everything that we are. God gets the glory. So as, uh, as we close out our time, I'd like you to just reflect on your life. Reflect on your journey of discipleship with Jesus. Paul and Barnabas are not just trying to get people to make intellectual decisions. Yeah, Jesus, he's cool. No. They risk their lives to go back and say, listen, Christian living is hard. Are you still following Jesus? It's a long road. Stay close to him. We're to be disciples, students of Jesus, which is a lifelong process. And if you are not a disciple of Jesus and you want to learn, how can I be a follower of Jesus? Come talk to me. Talk to Carl. We would love to bring you another step along that process. And as Paul and Barnabas go back and give their report about all the work that's been done, what I love about it is that they say, this is what God did through us. And my encouragement to you, anything you're proud about, may that be the flavor of what you say. God gave me the strength to do this. Praise be to him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for this opportunity for us to sit your feet as we listen to your word together. Pray that you would stir our hearts up with love for Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.